Welcome. Good morning. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. My family sure did. We traditionally on Thanksgiving go out of town. And this year, because it's our first year here in the Tri-Cities, our family came to be with us here in the Tri-Cities. So we had our first Thanksgiving here in our new city, in our new home with family. And it was a whole lot of fun. We really enjoyed it. It was a great celebration. And we're very, very thankful. And I'm thankful for this church family, too, that we're a part of and the new relationships in this place. We're grateful to God for you. When we come together on a weekend like this, it's a great reminder of why we can give thanks, not just once a year, but every day. Because we have a God who's real, who's personal, who cares for us, who loves us, who wants to forgive us and walk with us through life. And so really every day is an opportunity for us to give thanks. And these Sundays when we come together is such a good reminder of, of, of who God is and why we can be so thankful for Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, now if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, hopefully receive the notes on your way in here. The passage pr- is printed there for you with some notes. If you're online, those are available for you digitally as well. We want to look at Ephesians, sorry, Philippians chapter 4. And if you're not quite sure where Philippians is, it's in the back of your Bible, really. It's towards the end, and it's tucked in amidst a bunch of letters that the Apostle Paul writes to various churches. And Philippians is one of those churches that he writes to in the city of Philippi. And that's what we're going to be looking at together today. Now, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you know that we've been going through a series on our mission and our vision, a four-week series where we've been looking at what is our mission, what is our vision, and today we wrap that up. Now, just as a reminder of the terms that we've been using in terms of our mission and vision, the mission is this, why do we exist? And every legitimate Christian church turns to um, the Bible to help us understand why do we exist, and we look to Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, we have the Great Commission, the, the the mission for all Legitimate Christian church is to make disciples. And a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. So helping people learn and follow Jesus. And we do that locally. We do that globally. We do that as a lifestyle. And this concept of making disciples for us encompasses both helping people find Jesus and helping people follow Jesus. So it's this full uh, discipleship path. And that's why we exist. Then the vision is what are we doing? The mission is set for all Christian churches. The vision is what are we doing to accomplish that mission? And it varies between church to church. And so I'm new here, so we're still trying to figure out what are we doing to accomplish that? And what does it look like as we move forward in this new season? And even though it's not um, as clear as our mission right now, it's becoming clearer. And last week, I shared five different filters that we're using to help us shape that vision so that we can have greater clarity in terms of what it is we're doing to accomplish the mission that God has called us to here at South Hills Church. So those the, the mission and the vision. And as part of this series, we've spent a lot of time looking at Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. So we looked at Acts chapter 1. We looked at Matthew 28, the final instructions that Jesus gives to the disciples. But today, as we open up our time, what I want to focus on is one of Jesus' final prayers for his disciples, found in John chapter 17. This is a prayer that Jesus prays just before he's arrested and tried and crucified. So this is really right here at the end of his earthly ministry. This is what he prays. And so we're going to look at it. It's recorded for us in John chapter 17. And there's two really remarkable things about this prayer. First of all, it's remarkable that Jesus prays for us. 
that in this prayer, he prays for you, he prays for me, he prays for our church, which is a fantastic thing. The second thing that's amazing about this prayer is that Jesus has a prayer request. Jesus has a prayer request. Just imagine sitting around a circle, a bunch of people, you're sharing prayer requests, and all of a sudden Jesus raises his hand. He's like, I've got a prayer request. And you're like, Jesus, you've got a prayer request? Yeah, I've got a prayer request. So you're wondering, what is Jesus' prayer request? What is it that Jesus wants to pray for? And that's where John 17 is so helpful because here Jesus has a prayer request and it's for us and it's important for us to recognize what is it that he's praying for. In verse 9, he says this, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but those you have given me for they are yours. Now at this point, Jesus, the them that Jesus is referring to is the disciples. The, the, the disciples, minus Judas at this point, he's praying for those who have been following him, the disciples that God has given to him. That's who he's praying for at this point in his prayer. Then moving on, this is what he says. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to, the, to be with the Father, the Heavenly Father, but the disciples are going to be left behind. They're still here on earth, and so he's going to pray for them. And this is his prayer. This is what he says. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me so that they may be. Now, let's stop right there for a moment. So he begins, and this is his prayer for the disciples. He says, protect them by the power of your name. Now, when he's talking about protecting them, he's not talking about physical protection, because I don't know if you know this or not, but at this point, Jesus has been pretty clear about their future. Jesus has said to the disciples, hey, your future, guess what? You're going to be arrested. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be beaten. Some of you are going to die. No, that's your future. Bad news. They're saying, wait, wait, why didn't you tell us this ahead of time? And probably because they wouldn't have followed him, right, if he had, like, led with that. So, but that's their future. So that's where they're going. Jesus, at this point, is not praying for their physical protection. He's praying for something that is even more important than that. He's saying, I'm praying for your protection um, by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that, this is what his prayer request is, so that you may be one as we are one. Jesus prays for their oneness. Jesus' prayer request for the disciples is that they have unity, that they be one. This is, this is incredibly important. Why does Jesus pray for their oneness? Because he understands that if they are not in lockstep with one another and in lockstep with the Heavenly Father, uh, the, the world won't change. But if they are in lockstep with one another and they are in lockstep with the Heavenly Father, the world will change. If they stay together, if there's unity, if there's oneness, but if they get splintered, if they get divided, that mission will be stalled out. And that's why he's praying for their unity. He's praying for their oneness so that the mission will continue. Now, it's not just that he prays this for the disciples, those who were there at that time, but he also prays for you and me. Look what it says in verse 20. It says this, My prayer is not, only for, is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. So he's saying, I'm not just praying for the disciples. I'm praying for those who will believe. And those who will believe are the next generation of Christians and the next generation of Christians and the next generation of Christians all the way down to you and me, this church. Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. The question is, what is he praying for? 
This is what he's praying for. That all of them, that is the church, not just this church, but all those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all um, you know, b- diverse backgrounds, ethnicities, perspectives. All people, regardless of their color, of their skin, all of them who call on the name of the Lord may be one. That there is unity. That there's a oneness in the church, all those. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, the church, that is so diverse and it's so expansive. And there's so many people coming from different backgrounds and different places, different cultures. He's praying for the church. You, me, the church uh, globally would be one. And he says this, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. And this is so that. This is the, a purpose clause. Why does he want oneness? And it's interesting, he he's, he's wants oneness for them, but it's not so much for us, it's for someone else. It says, so that who? The world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus wants unity, he wants oneness in the church. This is his prayer request, and it's not necessarily for our benefit, although it is. He's praying because it's to the benefit of of others. It's the benefit of not just the church, but he wants, what he wants to do through the church and to reach those who are outside of the church. He's saying that through unity, through oneness in the church, that the world might turn and say, there's something different here. That maybe this Jesus is the, is the Lord and Savior. That they might believe in Christ. Jesus is saying, here's why oneness is so important. That in the midst of the diversity of the church, all the different aspects, all the different perspectives, all the different languages, that there would be a oneness that is so incredibly powerful that the world, you know, starts to pay attention and says there's something special about this unique group of people. That they're united, there's a oneness, that there's a love for God, there's a love for people, and that their hearts might be open to believe in Jesus. This is why unity is so important. And so here's the, here's the first blank. If you have your notes, if you're a note taker, is this. That unity is mission critical. Unity, oneness, is mission critical. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't an add-on. I hope they all get along. Jesus is saying unity in the church is mission critical because it's through the unity of the church, this beautiful picture of diversity and yet unity, that the world might believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. So this is important. It is mission critical. Now, the the challenge for us is to say, well, yes, it's mission critical. We've got to hold on to this. Um, and we need to be intentional as a church to fight for unity, to strive for unity. But the problem for us is that it oftentimes feels very impossible, which is the next blank here. That it feels impossible to live in unity with someone you disagree with. Do you feel that way sometimes? That you're like, yeah, Jesus, you're praying for unity. That's great. That's nice. But it feels impossible. It feels impossible for us to be in unity, to have oneness when I disagree with the people around me. But this is why this is so important and why this passage is so helpful. Because we understand we we live in a very diverse world 
And yet unity is mission critical. How do we do it? Philippians chapter 4, it gets very practical. And that's why I want to show you these three verses. Because in it, the Apostle Paul gets very practical in terms of how we can pursue a path towards unity in the midst of diversity, in the midst of living in a world in which we live with people that we disagree with, and even in the church. And so what I want to do is, is look at this passage for you, with you. And uh, so I want to invite you to turn to, again, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first three verses together. So I want to I invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture, and then we will we'll look at these verses together. Let me read it for you. It says this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to be of the same mind in, this, in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, Help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. This is a very practical passage because in this passage, the Apostle Paul addresses two people who were in conflict. Two people who disagreed, and as a result of that, there was division in the church. And so, these verses, he's addressing their division. And he's moving, he's pressing the church to move towards unity. And so it's very practical, it's very helpful. The two people that he's speaking to in this passage are Yodia and Syntyche. These are two women that he's, these, he's, he's speaking to directly. He knows them by name, um, which is important. So he knows them personally, and it's a big enough issue that it comes to his attention that he's saying, listen, we need to address this conflict. Now, the question you may have is, well, who is Yodia and who is Syntyche? The answer is, I don't know. Nobody does. We don't know anything else about them. All we know that their legacy for the past 2,000 years has been there's two ladies who fight in the church. That's their legacy. Okay? That's all we know about them. Well, then the question is, well, well, if we don't know who they are, well, what is they're fighting about? I don't know either. That's not given. It is not given. The fact that what they're fighting about is not talked about here. Now, one commentator suggests that they were fighting over masking. <laughs> I just had to let that sink in for a minute. Make sure you're paying attention. <laughs> okay. Maybe it wasn't that, just joking. Maybe it was over the color of carpet. Who knows what? We don't know. But they were fighting. There was a, they, were, they were, in, they were in, uh, in disagreement. That's all we know. But it was, it was, it was, a, it was an issue that was dividing the church and something that, that Paul needed to address. Now, this is, a, this is why it's so helpful. Because I don't know about if you've noticed or not, but we, we're not in a shortage of things to disagree about in our world and our families and our church. Am I right? We're not in a shortage of things to be divided over. There's no shortage of things in which we, we disagree, whether that's politically or socially or religiously or ideologically. We have lots of things that we disagree with in one another. And it's not just the stuff out there. It touches the, the, our, our families and it touches our, our church in here too. That I know that for many of you, even recently, that you've had very difficult conversations within your own family where there's division and there's disagreement. That you've had, you've had really hard conversations with your children or your children have had with you and there's disagreement. That you've had difficult um, conversations with coworkers or neighbors 
or friendships. In fact, that maybe some of you have friendships that you've had to say, you know what, we can't be friends right now because you can't get aligned. We know what it's like. There's plenty of things for us to find in our world and in our personal lives and within the church that we um, can be, disagree about. And there's division there. And this is why this passage is so important. Because what can happen with the division, it could be a very small thing, but a very small thing can become a very big thing rather quickly. Am I right? Where all of a sudden, this disagreement that you have, then you start to draw battle lines, and then you say, well, you're there, and I'm here, and that battle line, I'm not crossing it, and then pretty soon with the battle, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to grab my people to get my perspective. And then someone else says, well, I'm going to get my people to get my perspective. And then all of a sudden it becomes an us versus them. And it becomes very, very damaging. And it can be very, very divisive. And it can happen with really simple things. Really small things. But they can become very big things. In our family, one of the things that we can be a little divided over is what is legitimate Thanksgiving dessert, okay? I know. Small thing, but can become a bigger thing too. Now, let me just say this. There, there's some be division over what is a dessert, what it qualifies as a legitimate dessert, even at the Thanksgiving table. So this past week, um, I'll just to give a little background. My, my wife, Lisa, um, loves all things chocolate. All things chocolate. She loves all things chocolate. Now, she is a purist when it comes to chocolate. So do not contaminate a chocolate dessert with Things like nuts, for instance, okay? So she's all chocolate, no nuts. In fact, if you put nuts in brownies, that, heck, that could be listed in Revelation as a cause for the apocalypse in our home. You know what I mean? Really, truly, it's this big of a deal. So it is chocolate, all chocolate all the way. So she is <laughs> nut adverse. That they don't have, nuts have no place in desserts. So now when it comes to a, like a pecan pie, She's like, why would you make a dessert out of nuts? Well, I mean, it's just, to her, it's absolutely disgusting. So that's her side. Now, on my end, I love nuts, and I love pecan pie. Yeah. I think it's a fantastic dessert, okay? Now, some of you are with me. You're like, team pecan pie right now, right? You're like, yes, it is a legitimate Thanksgiving dessert. It's a dessert anytime. Pecan pies are great. And some of you are on the other side. No, nuts do not belong in desserts. And it should be cho all chocolate, no nuts. And you have your sides. Now, maybe you have your arguments for that. Maybe elbows are flying. I don't know what it is. But we can get very divided. There's an us versus them. It can happen rather quickly. And we see that play out in lots of different scenarios. Again, in our home, in our nation, in our church. And so this is why this passage is so incredibly important. The question that many people have is, well, how do you find unity then when there's disagreement? What is the answer? How do you find unity? Is the answer uniformity? Sometimes. There are some times when we do need uniformity. That is, there's times when the Apostle Paul and other apostles would say, this is a non-negotiable issue. This is a moment we need to say, this is this is it. And so we talked about this this last week in Acts chapter 15. There were Jewish Christians who were teaching others that in order to be saved, you need to be circumcised. They were adding something to the gospel, and the Apostle Paul was adamantly opposed. He said, this is a non-negotiable issue. You are contaminating the purity of the gospel. The gospel is faith and faith alone, nothing else. And so there are moments when you just have to say, this is a non-negotiable issue. But there's other times in Scripture where it's more gray. 
So you turn to Romans chapter 14, where there is debate over, okay, meat, sacrifice to idols, and days of worship. And we see this played out throughout history in different ways. And in our, you know, in our recent times, you'll have people who are in these gray areas, and there's worship wars in the church, and there's volume wars in the church, and there's philosophy wars in the church, and maybe there's just even, you know, decor wars in the church. Should this be this color or that color? There's lots of different things that are debatable issues that are like, is this really, is this really one of those non-negotiables? No, but we can still find ourselves doing the us-them. We find ourselves, you know, beyond different sides of the battle line, and it creates division in the church, in these gray areas, in these complex areas of the church. And so this is why it's so important. So then the question is, well, uh, okay, what about, what about in terms of finding unity, does it mean that you have to organize a certain way, that you need to be, have a union? And if I have an organization or a union, then we'll find unity. And the answer to that is no, not, not, not necessarily either. You can have union and organize towards unity, but it doesn't necessarily mean you will have unity. I heard one person say, you know, if you take two cats and you tie their tails together, you'll have union. But will you have unity? No. So it's not something you organize for. Um, but it, 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 that's not the answer. Is well, it's the answer then uniformity. That is, we all have to think the same, do the same, dress the same, sing the same. No, no, no. That's not it either. There is diversity. God has created diversity in the church. That we all have different perspectives. We have different backgrounds. We have different viewpoints. And that's beautiful. So that's why this passage is so helpful because in this passage, the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, there is diversity, but how do we work towards unity, oneness? And he gets very, very practical. So let's look at, the, look at this passage together. In verse 1, it says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So this is the first verse. It's a capstone verse. In fact, the therefore, he's referring back to what he's been talking about the previous chapters. He's kind of summarizing. He's saying, therefore, and he's talking to them he, he, fondly. He's saying, my brothers and sisters, you who I love. So he's, you, you feel the affection of the Apostle Paul for this church. This is a church that he um, planted in Philippi. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. But it's a, a church that he loves. These are people that he loves. And he says that you're my joy and my crown. That is, he's proud of them. And he he's, has joy when he thinks of them and, and who they are and where they're at. And so this is his affection. And he talks about that. But then he also uh, says something more to them. He says this, so stand firm. This is the, the directive. He's been talking about how his affection for them. Now he's getting directive with them. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So here's where he gets direct. He's been talking about his affections, how he loves for them. Now he gets direct and he says, stand firm in the Lord. If you want to underline, highlight something, this is what he says. You need to stand firm in the Lord. Why does he say that? Well, he's about to talk about two to, to talk directly to two people who are in conflict with one another that's creating division in the church. And before he goes there, before he talks to them specifically, he stands back and he says, I know that you're standing over here and you're standing over here, but what's the common ground that you're standing on? Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in Jesus. This is where he, he starts. He backs them up. And he just says, listen, I know we're going to get to this conflict. We'll talk about that. We'll get there. But I want you to first stand firm in the Lord. This is an important thing to find that common ground. Now, 
Um, I want to show you a, a math problem, okay? Math problem. One half plus two thirds. We're talking fractions. We're talking addition. Some of you are saying, Scott, please don't call on me. Please don't call on me. Call on my middle schooler. And it's like, okay, we talked this last week. One of our targets is middle school students, okay? And this is middle school math. Some of you are like familiar with it. Some of you are like, whoa, I'm a little fuzzy. But how do you solve this equation that's in conflict? Two fractions that are in conflict, one half and two thirds. What do you do to add them? Help me out. Middle school students, parents who have middle school students, what do you need to do? You've got to find the common denominator. So what's the common denominator here? Oh, it's six. When you find the common denominator and you say, oh, it's six. Now you guys are, oh, now it's coming back to you, right? You're remembering how this works. So you find the common denominator. Then you can add the fraction and you get seven, six. Now here's why I give you this little illustration. Because if we want to stand firm in unity, here's what we need. We need to find, we need a common denominator. We need a common denominator. And that's where the Apostle Paul says, here's what you need to stand firm on. You stand firm on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you're in conflict. Yes, you have different differences. You disagree. You see things. You're coming at things differently. But let's step back. What's the common denominator? Let's start there. Some of you are saying, that sounds nice, Scott, but I still don't know how I can have unity with people I disagree with. There are still people who I disagree with politically, philosophically, uh, morally. I just don't know how I can be in unity with them. Well, Dean, Paul is saying, step back, find common denominator. Start there. And in our case, as followers of Jesus Christ, this is the Lordship. It's Jesus Christ as Lord. We start there as our common denominator. You're saying, still, I don't have a picture for it. I don't know how it works. Let's just, let's go back and think about the, the disciples for a moment. The disciples who followed Jesus. Now, there's a number of disciples you hear a lot about in the New Testament. Names that are thrown out like Peter and James and John and Andrew or Thomas. But there is a disciple that maybe you haven't heard as much about. Um, His name is Simon. Not to be confused with Simon Peter, but Simon what? Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was also a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Zealot was the moniker that he had to differentiate him between Simon Peter, but he was a zealot. That is, the zealots, by the way, if you don't know what a zealot is, the zealots were a a first century religious extremist group. They were, they were religious extremists. In fact, they were not opposed to, you know, terrorism and assassination because they were all about overthrowing Rome and getting, you know, the nation of Israel back in power. So they, that, was, that was all that they were about. They were religious extremists. This is Simon the Zealot. Now, so you have Simon the Zealot who's part of the, the crew, part of the, the, the disciples. Now, there's also another guy who was a disciple named Levi. Levi the what? Levi the tax collector is his, what he's known as. Now, he, his name gets changed to Matthew. So you may have heard of him as Matthew, but he was Levi the tax collector. And as a tax collector, who did he work for? Rome. Okay, so now you have the disciples and you have a guy who's a zealot who wants to overthrow the Roman government. And you have Matthew, the tax collector, who worked for the Roman government. Now, you thought your kitchen table, you know, discussions were a little intense with different viewpoints and different people who were coming from different perspectives. Imagine this, this scene with these two disciples sitting next to each other with Jesus and the other disciples. 
Imagine the intense discussion they had with their different backgrounds and their different viewpoints. Don't you think at some point Simon, um, Simon the Zealot was sitting at a table and looking at Matthew going, what is this guy doing here? And guys, I mean, is it, when are we going to do something about this? I mean, when is it that we're going to take him out back and Matthew's going to be no more? You know, he no longer exists. When is that taking place? That's kind of the, his orientation, right? Because he wants to overthrow Rome. He, this guy worked for Rome. This is not a great mix. Now, how is it that they could have unity when they're so polar opposite we have the extreme conservative and the extreme liberal. What do we, what do, we do? We've got, we got, we got a big gap here. Well, they have a common denominator, don't they? They're both followers of Jesus Christ. They're both followers of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is the common denominator, that over time, you know what they did? They spent time together. They ate meals together. They learned together. They grew together. They served together. They shared the good news of Jesus Christ together. How is it possible that they could have unity? Well, they have a common denominator. They recognize we're followers of Jesus, and we're followers of Jesus first. And for many people, Christians especially, we need to remember, our common denominator is not a political party, uh, an ideology. Our common denominator is Jesus. We start there. That's the foundation. This is where we have commonality. This is where we find unity. So it's important that we find that common denominator. It's not just important that we find the common denominator. We also need to address certain realities in conflict with other people. So in verse 2 it says this, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now this is an interesting verse and I want to point out a couple of things that Paul says and does not say in this, in this verse. First of all, he says, I plead with them. Now the apostle Paul um, could command. When you're apostle, you can command things. He can put his foot down and say, I command. But he doesn't command, which helps you understand, well, maybe this is a little bit more gray, that it's not a cut and dry black and white issue, but this is an issue where he's not declaring a winner or a loser. And we see that because he says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche. That is, he's pleading with both parties. He's not saying, hey, Yodia, you know, knock it off. And just get on board with Syntyche. And he doesn't say, hey, Syntyche, you know, get, get with it here. Iodia is all right. He doesn't declare winner or loser. Take a side. He recognized that this is a conflict. They're, they may not agree. And there may not be an easy agreement. He's recognizing that it's still creating division for them, Christians, and, and it's dividing the church. And so he's saying, I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with both of you. And what is he pleading with them for? What is, he, what is he moving them towards? He said, I plead with you to be of the same mind in the Lord. So you might have differences and you might be free to disagree, but here's where you need to be aligned. That common denominator, here's the common denominator, is that they would have the same mind in the Lord. And if you want to fill in the next blank, it's this, that they need to stand together in, to stand together in unity. We need an uncommon mindset. Even though there's a common denominator, they need an uncommon mindset, which is the mind of Christ. It's not natural for us to respond in the way that Christ does. And this is what he's calling them to, to have unity over their response. This attitude, this mindset 
that's so uncommon. And the uncommon mindset is the mind of Christ. And, and to answer the question, what's the mind of Christ like? We need to go back a couple of chapters to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul spends more time talking about the mind of Christ. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and ca- compassion, that is, he's saying, since you have encouragement of being united with Christ, since you have comfort Sense your sharing of the Spirit and tenderness and compassion. Here's with how you're to respond. Verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. What kind of mind? It says in the next verse, it says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. So in terms of this mind of Christ, he's saying have humility, value others above yourself. So you're not looking at your own interests, you're looking at the interests of others. Verse 4 says this, not looking again to your own interests, but to your, each of you to the interests of others. So he's saying you're caring for the other person, you're thinking of them. You're not saying what is it in it for me, you're saying what, how can I help them? Verse 5, this is key. He says, in your relationships with one another, you're wondering how do I, how do I navigate relationships how do I navigate relationships with people I disagree with, where there's division, where there's conflict? What do I do in those relationships? Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same, it's also attitude. Have the same attitude, have the same mindset as Christ, even in these relationships with people that you're in disagreement, that you're in conflict with. Here's what he says in following. He says, who being in very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, take on the very, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That is, he's not using his God status for his advantage. He's using all of his power, all that God has given to him, and all of his resources, and he's leveraging that for the other person. He's saying, I'm going to step down and serve so that they can be lifted up. This is where he's using his power and all those that God has given him. Now, verse, the following verse. And being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And I'll do the next verse. I think I have that. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's a whole lot there, but essentially the mind of Christ, what he's calling us to is to have that same attitude of Jesus, which is, which is rooted in humility. It's is rooted in a, a self, uh, not a self-centeredness, but an other-centeredness, that Jesus humbled himself and he became a servant so that we could, and he took on the cross so that we who are enemies of God, who were rebellious, who rejected him, might be forgiven, might be saved. He lays down his rights so that we could be lifted up and made whole. This is an, a fantastic truth. And so when it comes to our relationships with those who are in con- con- conflict with, we may not agree. And there may be a, free, a, a moment where you just say, we can't agree there. There's a, a freedom to disagree. But how we treat each other matters. How do we have the same mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is humility, seeking to serve others, laying down our own rights, and forgiveness. That we might say, hey, I'm going I'm to forgive. And, and we, would there be a mutual forgiveness there. This is what he's calling them to in the midst of it. Now, this sounds easy, but it's not. And so sometimes we need help with that, which is why the following verse is so helpful. 
It says this in verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. So he's, he's saying, listen, and I ask you, my true companion. So he's calling out to someone else in the church. We don't know who it is. Um, he's saying, he's calling out to someone, his true companion, to help these women. Because there are times we need help, right? Because we get stuck. There are times when we get stuck in relationships with other people. We need someone else to help. And we see this play out in lots of different ways. We see this played out where Christians can get sideways with one another. We see it where um, husbands and wives can get sideways with one another. We see it where siblings can get sideways with one another. Co-workers can get sideways with one another. So he's saying, he's saying, we, you need help. Sometimes you need to look to someone on the outside, someone, a third party or someone else who can help you. This, by the way, is the biblical answer to our biblical basis for, for counselors. Why we need counselors? Because sometimes when you get sideways with someone, you need counsel. You need a counselor. When my wife and I saw a marriage counselor, one of the best, actually the best advice that that marriage counselor gave to us was this. Our marriage counselor said, here's what you need to do. You need to pray together daily. Every day, make a commitment to pray with one another. Not just for one another, but with one another. It's the greatest advice that we've received from marriage counselors, and we've given it to every couple that we've counseled ever since. And here's why. Because um, my wife and I disagree. My wife and I see things differently. There are moments when my wife and I approach things from completely different perspectives, and it creates conflict. It creates division. And so the counselor just said, hey, would you just, you know, there's lots of work that we need to do and still are doing, but he said, can you just pray together on a daily basis? And here's why this is so powerful, because when we pray together on a daily basis, it's very difficult to stay in conflict with someone when you pray and it puts you back on common ground. When we pray, we're praying to Jesus together. This is the common denominator. We may not agree on how we're doing things or how, well, how things are going, but it gets us back to we're talking to the same God. We're now both at the feet of Jesus, common denominator, saying, okay, we're both calling out to you together. And it's not just that we have a common denominator, but that we're having the same mind of Christ, that we're saying, okay, God, you show us what humility looks like. You show us what service looks like. You show us what, what it means to put the interests of others above our own. So now all of a sudden, when we pray, we're being reminded of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's called us to do. And it gets us back into a place to say, okay, we need to forgive just as we have been forgiven. And it gets us back to that spot. It's so powerful. And, and this is why it's important to have counselors in our lives. This is why it's, it's important to have people in our lives. This is why life groups are so powerful. Because when you have life groups, you have other people around you who can provide counsel, who can provide support, who know you, who, who understand the issues, who can encourage you, who can challenge you to say, is this an issue that you need to hold on to any longer? It's creating bitterness for you. It's creating division for you. It's creating division for the church or for this group. Someone who can speak in and say, listen, I'm going to speak in. And here's why. He says this. So, sorry, um, let's go back. 
It says, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So he's calling them to move forward because here's what he's, here's what he's doing. It's beautiful. The Apostle Paul, he, he's not just focused on their conflict and what they've done, but he's looking at their whole, like what they have done, who they are, and he's saying, listen, they contended with me for the sake of the gospel. It's very, like, very likely that these two women were a part of the church plant. They helped launch this church and get it started. That they contended, it says, by his side in the cause of the gospel. And that word contend is a, a word that, you know, gladiators would use. There's a, they battled it out. They battled for the gospel. And they, he's saying, listen, now they're battling each other, but I want them to get back to battling for the gospel. They're so distracted by their division, by this argument, by this disagreement that they're fighting here and they're missing the bigger picture of what I want them to get back to, which is contending for the gospel. And Paul says, listen, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers, those whose names are written in the book of life. So he's kind of pointing out this uh, subtly bigger picture that your, your names are written in the book of life. That is, you're going to heaven. That is, eternity is in view. And sometimes it's helpful to step back and say, yeah, eternity is in view. So is in light of eternity, is this really something that I want to die on right now? Is this really that a, an issue that, is, that I need to be fixated on? Because sometimes we step back and say, in light of eternity, okay, is this, is this so critical right now? So he's kind of gently uh, pushing them backwards to say, hey, listen, you're, you are all going to heaven because you've placed your faith in Christ. So in light of eternity, let's get back to our mission. Let's get back to contending for the gospel, which is why this, this third point that I want you to see is this. To stand together in unity, we need to focus on the mission. We need to get our focus back on the mission because when, we, when we, we're so fixated and we can't get past our disagreements, our challenges, whether it's in our own family or within the church, it keeps us from moving forward. I'm going to use a football illustration here just for a moment, just to, you know, for those football fans out there. You just imagine a football team, and on the, on the football field during a game, you, you find two guys who are conflict with one another because they're fighting over where to stand in the huddle. They're fighting with each other. Okay, you stand here. No, I stand there. No, we should stand over here for this huddle. And they're fighting over where to stand in the huddle. Now, if you're on the team, you're looking at these guys fighting over where to stand in the huddle. It would just seem right for you to say to these guys, right? Guys, listen, you know, we're on the same team. You're both great players. And yes, you know, you have this issue over where to stand in the huddle. But we have a much bigger picture going on right now. We, in just a moment, we have to go face a defensive line. We need to go forward. We need to get to the goal. And you're fighting right here. You're missing the bigger picture. You're missing a, the, the goal of where we're trying to go. So can we lay this down and get back to the big picture because it's distracting us from our focus. And it's the same, the same kind of concept that sometimes we can get so stuck here, we miss the, the focusing on the mission. This is why Jesus prays that we would be one, that we would be united. So that in the midst of the diversity, in the midst of the, the differences, the backgrounds, the different perspectives, that even though we aren't same or don't see the things the same, that we would still say, yeah, we are united with a common denominator, with the same mindset, that we would say we're on the same mission and we can't be distracted because the, because the mission matters and people matter. 
And when the world sees a church that's so diverse and yet united in one, and loving God and loving others, it changes things. We need to get back to that in terms of our mission. Now, every single week as we've been going through this mission and vision series, I've invited you as a church to pray, to pray for our church. And I want to continue to invite you to pray for our church, that we would stay on mission. In fact, the Apostle Paul, just after this verse in verse 4, he calls the church to worship. He says, rejoice. And then he calls the church to pray. And I want to do the same. I want to call us as a church to worship the one true God, Jesus Christ, our common denominator, and then to pray and pray that God would continue to work in us and through us. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. God, as we come before you in this time, we are reminded, of course, even during this Thanksgiving season, that we have so much to be thankful for. That even though we were and are a people who are rebellious and who run and reject you, that you loved us so much that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. That he be humbled himself, became a servant, so that we might, through faith in Jesus, be saved. We're thankful for this good news, for this truth. We don't want to miss an opportunity to, again, just stop and say thank you for saving us. And Lord, help us as a church and as individuals, as family members, as friends, as co-workers to um, not miss what you're calling us to, which is to be a people in the midst of our diversity, to be one in our mission in reaching people with the good news. God, we pray that you would do a work in us and through us, that we would be a church where people could recognize and see you and come to know you in a personal way because of your work here. God, we pray this together in your name. Amen.